Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 126. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in uh, from a remote location uh, is a friend of the podcast, and that's as vague of an intro as we'll ever give on the show. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. Hey. Hey, guys. What's up? Well, we told you what's up off mic, so we'll skip you that did. little small talk. <laughs> right. I wasn't really interested. No, it's okay. I, I'm sure you weren't interested then, and you wouldn't be interested now. <laughs> so we'll get right Correct. into the movies. Uh, you, let's, let's go. The double feature that we're talking about this week, and it sounds uh, like you're asking about. Let's go. Oh, want to hear something about it? Oh my god, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, my um, my Amazon product oh. that I was speaking to her. Damn. In the other room. <laughs> oh, here she goes. Here she goes. Would you like to hear it? I'm sorry. I'm glad we could have another female voice on the podcast. You know, we're really just like making up for lost We're really ground inclusive here. here. Yeah. And we have a female um, filmmaker on this one too with Sia. It's true. So. It's true. We're always empowering strong female filmmakers. Uh, our, our double feature this week is Guy Madden's uh, 2003 film, The Saddest Music in the World and the very controversial and award-nominated film from 2021, <laughs> Music, directed by Sia Kate Isabel Furler, also known as Sia, uh, as a pop star. And Lindsay, you, uh, you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to bring these onto the podcast. Well, so, as I said, Malcolm and I are friends and... Um, our only hanging out as I live on the other side of the country is watching like the worst fucking movies, like terrible movies together. And uh, the two of us and another friend were going to watch music a couple months ago. Uh, and I didn't know how to open a RAR file, so that fell through. Um, so uh, we, we thought we'd just do it again this time. And I, I just wanted to see how... Um, how miserable a movie could make me and this really exceeded my expectations yeah yeah we've uh we we kind of stay away from like purposely choosing bad movies for the most part on this podcast but once in a while we do and recently we did what was it super babies baby geniuses 2 by bob clark yeah. and that i i thought we couldn't surpass that like that was the new low point for the <laughs> podcast that was the new most miserable i've ever felt during a movie we've watched for the podcast but <laughs> see ya uh, you got to give her credit where credit's due. Created an experience even more miserable than Bob Clark's Super Baby Geniuses, whatever. Uh, but the aim, the first movie that we're going to talk about, you know, we'll save the sweet stuff for dessert, like a proper meal. Sure, we'll, naturally. And we'll get into the good stuff. Uh, the Saddest right. Music in the World is a 2003 film by Guy Madden, his first collaboration with Isabella Rossellini. And I, I feel like I should turn to JT here as JT brought a Guy Madden double feature to the podcast in its infancy and seems to be the the big fan of the three of us of this this strange Canadian filmmaker uh JT you you had seen this one before correct yeah this was like an early favorite of mine it was a uh, 
an iPod Touch classic. Damn. I remember uh, being <laughs> on like vacation, and I want to say like seventh grade in my like grandma's attic in in South Carolina. Uh, watching this on my iPod Touch, and I loved it then. How do you even? This seems like a movie you couldn't be able to access on an iPod Touch. For <laughs> it some was reason. on like Netflix streaming, oh, like shit. for a while, like back in, in the early day. back in the day. And that I think they had like Brand Upon the Brain. I, surprisingly enough, that's how I saw like I think a few Guy Mads back in the day. But I loved this one, connected with it right away, um, and still it's like up there for me because I think it's him. Like obviously. On like an aesthetic level, it's crazy, and he's like doing all of his classic like silent or like '30s film shit. But this, um, he's presenting, I think, probably his most like straightforward narrative that I've seen. And I just, I don't know, I I, I think it's a really funny like over the top melodrama. I uh, I don't know. It's fun to see uh, one of kids in the hall who I think uh, he comes back for like the keyhole later on in Madden's career. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, a real fun picture. Yeah, very strange to see Mark McKinney most famous. Well, I guess not most famous because he's been in more famous stuff, I guess, but more notable for his uh, appearances on the sketch comedy show Kids in the Hall being this crazy art film. Uh, Malcolm, had yeah. you seen much Guy Madden? How'd you feel about this one? Uh, you know, I guess a handful of movies I've seen by him, you know, so and I, I really like this one. And I... I feel like I don't know. It's it. It could be easy to kind of get caught up in like this pastiche game, this kind of like, uh, you know, mimicking old movies or whatever. But I think the way Madden does it is just I don't know. It's the way every kind of unfurls. It takes kind of different styles, you know, as it like kind of will as the movie goes along goes to like that two strip Technicolor that you know looks amazing. And like I think what's most important about is like. I don't know. I think the humor like is what kind of mm-hmm. binds it all together for me because it's like it's one thing to kind of take the styles, you know, of a lot of the great silent movies or, you know, movies from the 1930s or whatever and kind of play out, um, you know, a movie that way. But I feel like kind of like it takes what those movies couldn't be, you know, kind of like the nasty sex humor and kind of like the just, you know, uh I don't know. The humor in it is kind of a uh, cutthroat sometimes, you know what I mean? It's kind of movies back then, you know, uh, they could have that attitude, but it was, couldn't be expressed so explicitly. And so I think kind of using kind of old movie styles to give it, you know, something that it couldn't back in the day, I think it's a worthy cause. And I feel like it adds something to like the formal aesthetic that Madden has. I think if it were a lot, if it were more self-serious and like more going that art house route, I feel like I would fucking hate it and like find it really boring. But like this where he and like something like Sissy Boy Slap Party as well, (laughs) where he's just like incredibly crude and perverse. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's something for everyone to love. Uh, Lindsay, had you ever uh, seen anything by this filmmaker before? No, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard the name before, to be honest. I think I later looked up um, his filmography and like letterbox. And I think I made it might've vaguely recommend, recognized a couple titles, but, um, I'd say I'm completely inexperienced with him. And I didn't know, I didn't look up the movie before we watched it. I just went into it cold. So I had no idea what to expect. And, um, I just, I, I loved how I hate to say the word romantic cause it can be so broad and define a lot of different things, but the story is, uh, 
everything about it is romantic. The type of humor and how fast the humor happens and obviously the story and all the side plots and everything about it is just so um, inviting. And even like I, I know plenty of people would be put off by the uh, 30s style, the black and white, like they, they, they need the Technicolor or whatever. Um, but I think... Yeah, the humor of it all, uh, it just so, it, it pulls you in and any like maybe hesitation you may have had about it prior, it's gone immediately. You want to know what the story is trying to convey to you. And um, yeah, I thought it was beautiful. I watched it, a se I watched it again the, the, after the, the first time I watched it the very next day. And I'm eager to get around to watching it again just to see how much I can pull out of it for myself. Yeah, I mean, you spoke on the style a little bit. And for people who haven't seen this or any Guy Madden films, it's like he he's kind of pulling from the first chapter of film history, if you will. Like, you, you have a lot of silent era techniques. Of course, this is a movie where people talk. And uh, so if you're saying it's like a silent type movie, that would be anachronistic. But he, he's kind of blending the first kind of 30 years of narrative film history together with all these techniques and also imposing things that would only come later such as you know the crude humor and certain types of camera movement and like editing techniques and you know the the way the production design is in especially though reminds me of silent era film you know these sets are just like so insane and so closed off from the real world there's a lot of shots that are very tight and you don't have that much like wide open space in this film and it's because you simply can't like build out that world that far <laughs> like these sets are so fucking unreal and out of this world that it's hard to hard to even keep up but yeah the interspersing of like you know the, there's different film stocks used there's as you said Malcolm the approximation of the early two strip technicolor stuff there's also more of a full like super eight color sequence toward the end the final battle i guess of the tournament <laughs> of sadness uh, and i do like how this is like structured similar to the way martial arts films are structured like it's like a tournament <laughs> movie you know and i, really I think is. that that really kind of helps uh, as you said jt it's the most straightforward narrative that guy madden's done i think that the kind of tournament structure with the romance or the multiple romantic plot lines running through it kind of injecting so much life and bridging you from one uh musical you know showcase to the next so the narrative of the film on the whole, though, you have a, uh, a Prohibition-era Canadian beer baroness. Uh, the title card says Winnipeg 1933, the height of the Depression. <laughs> and I feel like it has this kind of artificial, kind of campy quality to it that lends itself to the humor and the kind of surreal aspects of it. And uh, yeah, so basically she is legless due to an automotive accident involving our hero. Uh, Chester, who was receiving uh, road pleasure from her before, uh, <laughs> like running over his dad, and you know, JT, you mentioned pastiche earlier, and I feel like this really is a pastiche, a, re a reference-filled film, and you could even go as far as taking this as a reference to the death of, you know, the the greatest silent master of them all, perhaps F.W. Murnau, <laughs> who died famously getting roadhead, and so it's like he's taking these little bits of 
nastiness from history and just the way people interact in reality and interspersing them into this aesthetic that we had never seen before. And that's kind of the general, you know, aesthetic and narrative gamut of the film. One thing that I think like really ties like the narrative form together with Guy Madden's like formal fixation of what you're saying, Eddie, of like basically like most of his movies be having that look of like the first 30 years of filmmaking uh, all of the characters here are like weirdly fixated with their past or have some sort of lingering like trauma yeah. or like something like that that they're either like trying to return back to or like escape from like it's funny the father being <laughs> like so hung up on like building like glass beer legs for someone who has never even loved him but he's like telling his son Roderick he's like come on you're like living in the past get over your fucking dead kid and your wife that left you and give the girl that you stole from me these glass beer legs (laughs) Uh, of course yeah the the narrative of romance here is that the woman was you know um maybe set to marry uh, the the father of the main character at some point, but obviously had romantic entanglements with her son. And then uh, throughout, you know, maybe after 20 minutes or so, the the brother of this son, uh, his name is... Roderick? Oh, yeah. Roderick shows up and uh, he, you know, sees the woman that this son is now hanging out with, uh, Narcissa. And he's like, oh, that's my wife. Like, you're just (laughs) fucking my wife. And we have a kid together. And she just doesn't recognize him. And it's this like, it's this thing that almost reminds me of, I don't know, maybe like the end of Twin Peaks, The Return or something like that, where some sort of like surrealism or dream logic really is only there to cause pain for characters and how like someone just can't accept their own reality. Also, Mulholland Drive, I guess, would fit into this category. And uh, yeah, it's like for all of the goofy humor throughout it, uh, the actual narrative really does like it embodies so much pain in the backstory of all of these characters and all they can really do is just like fuck each other over pretty much. Or make really sad music about it. That's (laughs) true. Lady Port Huntley's saddest music in the world opening pageant has begun. Led by the Zannies of Africa, resplendent. If I can focus my opera glasses for a moment here. I like the tournament structure and also it's like, it's like a martial arts movie, but specifically it's like blood sport where it's like we're taking like the, the cultures of countries and kind of like clashing them against each other. And I don't know, I think like some just some commentary about, like, you know, how, you know, other countries are perceived by other ones or like, I don't know, kind of like the american chester you know chester who's a, a real a real kind of uh, asshole throughout the, throughout the movie who's also not american he just yeah. represents america <laughs> like he's a canadian who you know so just re- refers to himself as a producer from new york uh, and that's how he like gets the role of being the american here i'm not an american i'm an infomaniac as long as you're not american you can be whatever you like well he's an american you're mistaken. 
He may have the stink of America on him, but I assure you, he's Canadian, 100%. We didn't really set up the tournament. It's, you know, this beer baroness played by uh, Isabella Rossellini is setting up a tournament to find out who makes the saddest music in the world. And so all these represent representatives of countries come by. Uh, and it's it has this kind of turn to the century, you know, World's Fair kind of feeling. This, like, you know, bringing the world together to explore these new, like, art forms and technologies and stuff like that. And so I, I as uh, Chester even says about his musical sequence that he's planning out, he's like, it's got to be, you know, full of gimmicks. It's got to be, you know, as and it's got to be as crazy as it's, it, he says, it's got to be vulgar and full of gimmicks, which also is like clearly Guy Madden's strategy with this movie <laughs> itself. Uh, and so I think that's really fitting. And yeah, I, I just think it's like, there's just so much going on that's interesting in this movie. The constant like kind of switching of techniques and style or whatever. And like, I think you mentioning kind of the closeness of everything, how like there's no white spaces kind of opened something up about like the visual scheme. It's like, it's, it's constantly relying on kind of like a, you know, like a, a hard swivel or something mm -hmm. like that. And kind of just like, I don't know, there's a lot of like scenes, you know, that kind of just almost, you have like a blurry vision through, you know what I mean? It kind of almost feels yeah. like he's running them through, through hyperspeed. And speaking of that cramped feeling, it's like, you know, the first 30 years of film history, they were all shot in Academy ratio, 1.37 or 1.33. Uh, and this is shot in our normal TVs widescreen ratio as it is now. And it seems almost like, you know, the way those old movies look when they're cropped on TV. Uh, but I, I, as much as I may have taken to, you know, it's a stupid thing to fixate on, but gotten annoyed by that at first, I think it really contributes to just feeling trapped in this world and that there's no real reality beyond it. Uh, so once we get to the the main number where all the, the drama comes to America's entry in this contest where, uh, you know, What's her name? Narcissa sings sweet. What, what is it? Swing low, sweet, sweet cherry. Swing low, sweet cherry. I know that one. That's uh, you know, it's, that go, goes way back in my in my lineage. Oh yeah. Uh yeah. So that one, she's you know on this big swing, and it's like it's cutting back and forth between showing it in reality and then shooting her in close up with this like rear projection behind her. And every time it does that, it has like, you know, a very obvious rear projection or even just another screen behind her, not even the classic rear projection style. And I don't know, just leaning into that artificiality to create such like a surreal atmosphere really hits there. I, I just think it's like, I don't know, on, on the whole for this film, all I can really say is that it's just such an aesthetic achievement. I, I can't really, like, I, I keep thinking about certain sets and certain shots and certain transitions throughout the day since I watched it. Uh, you know, particularly, like, the announcer's booth where the two announcers of the tournament mm -hmm. hang out. It's just, like, this giant, like, rhombus filled with other shapes in it. And <laughs> I can't even fucking describe it properly. You literally just have to see it. And, uh... Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I can't go too much deeper on this one. I just think it's like such a feat of what Guy Madden's whole aesthetic project seems to be. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I for a rating, I give it three and a half bullets. What, what about you, JT? Um, I'm going to go four and a half bullets. I feel like, I mean, I think Madden sometimes is hard to talk about because I think a lot of his thematic concerns are pretty like because he likes to go 
so over the top. He puts it all there, like on the surface. Like I think the aspects of like American Canadian culture and sort of the cross pollination there and like influence and also the relationship to like early film history being like very exploitative and it obviously still continuing to be like ties into like how much of a crash showman uh, Mark McKinney is and the fact that like Rosalini's like angle the angle she's playing for like why we're having this saddest yeah. music contest is like <laughs> well prohibition is ending soon and this is going to be an easy way to sell a lot of fucking beer and I don't know Madden like really has that like I don't know right there for you and just makes it a really like intense pleasurable ride where he can be just like surreal and weird and goofy where like Narcissa will be like she says a bunch about like a tapeworm sort of leading her thoughts or she'll <laughs> they'll see like a sleepwalking man in the street where she'll whisper in his ear and it's just like I, I don't know all of his movies are so uniquely him that um even if it might be difficult I feel like for me to parse out like the experience or like get everything that he's trying to express out of it it's just uh I don't know a voice like no other his movies, from what I could tell, and this one especially, they're just so spring-loaded, full of, like, camera tricks, all that stuff, you know, focus on visuals. And, like, keeping the themes kind of simpler, in a sense, kind of allows him to do that, allows, like, that freedom. But it is, like, it is like the, the stuff with, like, the weird uh, family romantic and, you know, entanglements, or I guess just Chester just fucking over his family, pretty much. It's, it's, funny, it's funny how, like, I don't know. It's a, it's a funny way to portray kind of... Uh, family resentment you know within this movie and like and i guess another thing i like about the saddest music in the world competition it's it's so funny because it's like it sounds like something you know so very kind of peculiar and odd it's like it doesn't sound like a exactly like a money maker right but it's like <laughs> i like how like this it kind of just turns into like yeah like we're just trying to sell beer like it just turns into a concert and like just the catchy. I mean, aren't all huge events like that just to sell beer anyway? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, definitely. You know, it's Guy Madden pulling the curtain back on concert culture. You wow. know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> uh, but uh, I didn't rate it yet. Four bullets. Wow. Uh, Lindsay, any, any final thoughts on this one in a rating? Um, I'm going to give it four and a half bullets. Um, I, I feel like I don't have a lot to say uh, about it because... I don't know. For me, the I guess an indication that I've, I guess, fully enjoyed something is when I, when I do have to sit with it for a while and let it kind of uh, marinate for for a while. Um, I was really touched by Roderick and how like sensitive he was, sensitive to the light and to sound and yelling at someone in the crowd who's like like chewing too loud for him and like he's just so. Um, overwhelmed by his own his own heartache that he can't tolerate like anything else everything is too much for him um until narcissa comes back to him um i just found that so uh touching and real like if you if you've ever fallen in love with someone and lost them it's what it feels like like everything is is too much for you to handle with without that person and um i don't know i just found all especially all the all the all the romantic stuff, the the big song that I hear music song that they keep singing throughout. Um, I I teared up a little bit the second time I watched it. Um, I just it's I feel like it's rare for me to find 
movies that have that warmth and are still energetic, charismatic, and can balance can balance all of that—the humor, the the gorgeous uh, aesthetics, and the uh, the heartfelt passion throughout. So four and a half. We'll be right back on extended play. happy as i am and we're back on extended clip it's everybody's favorite segment malcolm in the middle mm-hmm. malcolm uh well first of all <laughs> life is unfair uh malcolm have you have you mm-hmm. watched anything interesting or noteworthy this week <laughs> well i'm glad you used interesting and noteworthy because that's exactly the words i would use to describe a little movie by todd salons named dark horse now uh, I don't know. I yeah, this is this is gonna sound weird. This is this is a journey through my mind, real quick. I I saw Chunking Express yesterday, um, at the Arrow or whatever, and I liked it. I didn't I didn't love it, and but there's a lot of jokes in that movie, right? And some of them are pretty funny. But for some reason, this is just pure bitterness, by the way. But uh, <laughs> like I I was I was watching it and like. I was getting mad when the audience would laugh at parts I didn't find funny, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I was just and like and I was just kind of reckoning with that afterwards. It's like that's not, you know what I mean? That's not a good way to think, or like that's not a, I don't know. That shouldn't affect my viewing either. You know what I mean? I shouldn't take that into consideration uh-huh. while watching the movie. But I don't know. And I, I and for some reason I was just like I kind of need. And I like the movie, but I was like, I kind of need something the opposite of that. Yeah, and something so darker. I, so I, yeah, I needed. I was like, this, this movie's not edgy enough for me. So I <laughs> I, uh, I watched Dark Horse by Todd Salons, and boy, do I want to kill myself now! Jesus Christ, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's. I mean, that's kind of the the feeling I get watching most Todd Salons movies. But I feel like I don't know. He's he's pessimistic, mystic in a like a weirdly way that I I guess I would called productive it kind of feels like a i don't know there's something in his movies kind of feels like a more honest you know critique of kind of like uh suburban mediocrity or something like that then you know then it wouldn't have if he did wasn't you know he wasn't willing to go so negative and you know dark horse is about abe He's a man, you know, lives with his parents. He's 30. He's obsessed with collecting toys. It sounds like a lot of people that, you know, are walking around right now. But uh, <laughs> he, you know, he's he's kind of aware that, you know, people don't really respect him. You know, he works for his dad's company, all that stuff. And so in order to kind of gain respect, he's like, I should, you know, get a girlfriend, get married or something. And he kind of encounters a very, like, uh, drug-addicted Selma Blair. And there's kind of like this weird scheme to where she's like you know i'm tired of living you know like this alternative lifestyle where like i read about marxism or whatever and i just i need to like let go of hope in my life and like just marry this normal man and have kids with him and uh 
it doesn't quite go that way. And uh, I don't know. It's like every Solins movie. It's like, it's very funny kind of like, you know, maybe a little bit more pessimistic than I would have liked, but I guess I, it kind of feels like, I don't know. He likes giving you a dose of medicine a little bit. And I know that going in. So I got I got to open my mouth and, you know, take the spoonful. But like, I, I don't I don't think this is like his strongest effort. Like, I think this movie, like something like happiness or even storytelling kind of feels a bit more complex. This kind of just feels one note. Like, I feel like he can make movies like this in his sleep, so to speak. But did you see a wiener dog? The one from a few years ago? No, I didn't. Is that no, that one was surprisingly good. It, it was weirdly like compared to the other ones I've seen from him. It feels weirdly compromised and not as dark. But then mm-hmm. like. The more I think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, for a film that has that kind of tone, it's so evil and like yeah. so <laughs> so just like contemptuous of the entire world around it. That Oh, well, that's that's very Salons is very contemptuous. He's yeah. one of the most content. And like I it, it's kind of a, a funny target here. He's kind of targeting like a lower middle class uh, <laughs> Jewish guy or whatever. <laughs> uh, and like, I don't know. It's just the, some of the small touches are funny, like the T-shirts. He wears to the office. There's a great T-shirt of like a a matzo ball dressed up as like a rapper, and it says "I'm a matzo baller." And it's just I don't know. It's just kind of the worst <laughs> pop culture references. This guy's always rocking yeah. and stuff like that. And <laughs> I don't know if if you ever need if you ever had the problem I had and <laughs> where you had, were just pissed off at the happiness of others if you're around pissed you. Off, <laughs> if you're pissed off at the happiness of, of others around you, I'd recommend giving a Solins movie a watch. Yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely a filmmaker I'm surprised we've never talked about on the podcast, and maybe that means one of us should pick one of his movies yeah. before we end it. Uh, our guest, Lindsay, have you seen anything recently that you want to talk about? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's a little show called Kitchen Nightmares. Um, I am really bad at watching movies these days. I will admit that I seldom have the patience or even know exactly what I want to watch. But uh, every morning I wake up at 6 a.m. and make my silly little breakfast and I watch my Kitchen Nightmares uh, during and I can pretend it's a movie. It's so it's they're usually about an hour long episodes. So I can pretend it's a short little one, um, but it's uh, the I just uh, I just get all the drama that I need for my day. Um, it's uh, really remarkable how. Uh, how in that and see I watch it while I'm cooking on purpose so I can compare what I'm making uh, which is usually just like scrambled eggs and like sauteed spinach the easiest shit in the world to these restaurants whose the plates it's just complete slop um, or their their kitchens are overrun with rats and roaches and they they're like I don't I don't see what the problem is I don't understand why we don't have any customers um, and it's great it makes me feel like my my life is like good like I'm not half a million dollars in debt so I feel really good about myself and um, I love, I just watched the first episode where Gordon Ramsay does like the fake out where he pretends he's gonna just leave and be like fuck you guys, uh, but he comes back and uh, he comes back and he does that like every like fifth episode and they make a really big deal about it in the the little uh, little like the break uh, the little trailer thing whatever. Um, but I got to the first one in the whole in the whole series just this morning. Uh, which is a big accomplishment for me. That means I've watched like 12 episodes now. Um, 
And so, yeah, um, it's great because I have been, um, I've been writing, I've been writing the story where the main character is a chef and it's kind of why I started watching Kitchen Nightmares just to compare how like bad, like this is what I don't want that character to do. Um, so have you uh, seen uh, the Bradley Cooper movie Burnt? Oh, I can't stand looking at him. So no. <laughs> I was going to say that could kind of fit into the same uh, lane of inspiration. It's yeah. I may have to, I may have to go through because I've been reading my Anthony Bourdain uh, books and I got to go back through and over. I'm just trying to get as much food media in as I can, but he Bradley Cooper definitely has the Ben, the, uh, ben Affleck effect on me where I just go into a blind rage the second I see their faces. <laughs> well, those are two so good actors I, right there. I think you might be. I can't, don't even, t- I can't even talk about Ben Affleck for too long. I'm going to get red hot in a second. Don't you like watch, like, don't you, don't you, like you watch a movie and like Ben Affleck is getting red from all the beers he's drinking. Like you don't find that enjoyable. <laughs> oh. And he's back with JLo now, which is also like, it just, Oh my god, that pisses me off beyond belief. Some uh, guys have anyway, it that's all. A <laughs> that's a completely different story. Um, but yeah, Kitchen Nightmares is great. Um, my only complaint about it is that um, British chefs like plate their food so ugly, like they make it look like it, it almost looks like the shape of like a like if they have asparagus, they fan it around the whole plate, and it looks like a bird when they're done. It looks ridiculous. So that's my only complaint. Um, I wish Gordon Ramsay was single and available and interested in a 26-year-old girl in Florida. Um, give it but, time. <laughs> I'll give it time. Uh, you know what's going to happen. I'll put this in God's hands. I feel like Ramsay kind of spreads his person like kitchen nightmares in the moderate. He's kind of like an even keel kind of guy. He'll blow up at someone if he needs to. Uh, Master Chef, he's the nice guy. He's like, you know, you, you need to mm-hmm. improve a little bit. And then like, Hell's Kitchen is one oh. of the most intentionally like, <laughs> like just, just fucking hellish. I guess yeah. I have to say shows I've ever seen where it's like Ramsey's trying to be unpleasant as as possible, and they <laughs> they purposely cast just like unlikable dickheads. It's yeah. like it's a very strange, intense show. Like it's I remember he has going- like a, there's like a go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I remember one time I was getting like ice cream with my mom and my sister when I was younger and uh, they, they had a TV with Hell's Kitchen on. And I've always thought that's like such a bad thing to show where like somewhere where you're selling food because it's just such an angry show. And I feel like no matter how good the food might end up looking, you just come away with a very negative connotation about food. Yeah, true. Or just working with food and just yeah, just people yeah, in just general. Employees just, feel. just being on the Hell's Kitchen set and hearing just someone screaming in the background while you're waiting for your steak. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, he has some other show. It's it's just like the junior or like the kids version of something he already has. And I've seen just little clips. He's just like a, he's such an angel to all these like eight year olds. He's like cuddling with them and like I'm so proud of you and like pinching their cheeks. And then uh, on Hill on a uh, Kitchen Nightmares, he's uh, he said to some guy and they repeated this clip like ten times before they actually played it for real. He was like, I have never ever 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 believed in anyone less than I believe in you. Jesus, <laughs> that's a money line. <laughs> you know, you know, once was- once the ratings start to fall, I don't I don't want to 
curse Ramsey here with bad luck. But once the rating starts to fall, he is going to start being mean to those children. And people are going to start watching. <laughs> and I don't know That's what that what says I'm, about I'm everything. My, I'm crossing my fingers for that. That's what I need to see. JT, you see anything good this week? Oh, yes, I have. I have been on a, a landmark run of great movies wow. recently. Honestly. This guy's going insane. I, I'm proud I, of you. I am going insane. And I need to find happiness where I can't in my real life <laughs> in the movies. Um, and I've been doing a run of Max Ophel's movies. And mm. that man is a motherfucking pimp. He is so good. Just like, I don't know, some of the, the most like... Uh, just powerful image making I think I've ever seen and just like knows his way around a camera. Obviously people will talk about his insane camera moves a whole lot and just the way he uses dissolves and like overlays images. He uh, is a man who knows how to create meaning through juxtaposition and just like, I don't know, it was when I, I've been screenshotting a lot of Ophuls because they're so beautiful. But some things you just can't capture in one image just because he'll like do an insane camera move around a set that was like clearly like built a certain way so he could accomplish one move. Mm -hmm. And it just blows my fucking mind. And so I think I'm going to talk about the first uh, movies that set me down my Ophuls journey this week. And that was... Uh, 1939's There's No Tomorrow, which uh, this boy also hopped around so many different European countries and, of course, the States as well, just making movies damn everywhere. And this was um, when he was in France uh, after something was going on in Germany at that time that was heating up where he had, as a Jewish filmmaker, had to vacate the premises. Hey, let's, hey say it. Let's not ignore the legacy. <laughs> I mean, well, the, all of this, the the movie is called There's No Tomorrow. It's uh -oh. 1939 in France. It just like has this lingering negative atmosphere about the war that I feel like, because it's not like about the war, but the feeling yeah. of hopelessness is incredibly present. But it's about um, this woman named Evelyn who is a uh, like topless dancer? I was surprised you see titties in something from 1939. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. They, it turns out they Hell look yeah. the same as just today. You wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> I I, st I still don't believe that. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to check out the movie. Um, but she the the lead is Evelyn, a woman who works at like a topless bar now as like a dancer. And then this former lover comes back into her life. So she winds up going into this like incredibly like intricate scheme where she like quickly rents an apartment with her son in like a nicer part of town. She borrows money. Um, from this like old like mob connection of hers and to just sort of like get this uh, old lover back and she lies to the mob and says oh he's just like some rube I'm just trying to get like a scheme in because he's fuck he's like some fucking loaded doctor from Canada but when they meet you realize that like she has a, a past with the mob where her former husband was like involved and like got killed or whatnot just some some complicated shit that you watch the movie, you'll see the details, but the way <laughs> Ophel's like interweaves like flashbacks in this is just so beautiful because he'll have like, and I've noticed this like throughout all of his work, he'll like do like complicated like narrative structures or there'll be things where like you're learning information about a character at a certain point and the way he'll like fade into memory through like close up 
and camera movement and dissolves is just so powerful and has like this dreamlike quality. And because of the movement and the dissolves, you're just like, you just breeze through the movies. So like, they're all like 70 to like 90 minutes. So they're pretty quick, but it just has this gentle little glide through these insane stories. And one like flashback in particular that really captivated me is like these old lovers are reconnecting about uh, a time where Evelyn, she just fucking dips on her lover. And you go into the flashback by like, like pushing in on them talking in the present into the fireplace and you see that fire dissolve into like the lovers holding hands at the movies and uh, I don't know just really blew me away Ophuls in general um, didn't have all that many movies so I think probably soon I'm gonna see all of them and maybe even bring something to the podcast yeah. for us to see yeah he's a classic man if there ever was one <laughs> Uh, I, I watched a movie because of a movie we watched on the podcast. Our previous bonus episode before the Vanilla Sky one was, of course, on Los Angeles Plays Itself. And one of the films featured in that film essay uh, was a neo-noir from 1996 called Mulholland Falls. Now, this is a movie I had never heard of before watching Los Angeles Plays itself. It's a movie that, you know, was a big budget movie with real movie stars and uh, made, a, made a fair amount of money, but only three people I follow on Letterboxd have logged it. It's a movie that seems to have vanished uh, from, mm -hmm. and it just exists in the ether of film history, whether it's 1996 or the 50s when it takes place. So this is a uh, film about a special crime squad of the LAPD, very similar to the strike team from The Shield. Uh, you have this squad, which is, I mean, it's just such a crazy assemblage of dudes that make up the main squad in this movie. It's Nick Nolte, Chaz Palminteri, Michael Madsen, and Chris Penn. And so for the most part, it's like those four guys. Well, I wouldn't say for the most part, but for a fair amount of this movie, it's those four guys out on the town chasing down leads, beating up hoodlums uh, as they're credited you know rob lowe has a small part in this movie where he's credited as hoodlum uh which is always fun but it's a classic story of a dead girl being found and a conspiracy being unraveled from that the dead girl here is played by jennifer Connolly. And all of her scenes are in flashback, of course, because she is dead in the beginning of the movie. And they're pretty much all just flashbacks of Nick Nolte fucking her, like every scene that she's in. <laughs> uh, and so yes. Nick Nolte is, you know, both trying to unravel this conspiracy and kind of cover up the fact that he was having sex with her the whole time. Uh, unbeknownst to him, he was being videotaped. There's a man, like the, the gay best friend of Jennifer Connelly was like sneaking around, taking home movies of everything and i guess the movie is implying that like he is getting off to the guys who are fucking her i guess I, I don't really know you know how this film's like view of sexuality necessarily works uh but That's as gay as you could get back yeah, right? <laughs> you still have to jack off to straight pornography to, yeah to, to the nick nolte side of things not to the jennifer connelly side of it uh but of course uh the conspiracy involves atomic energy in America in the 50s. You have uh, John Malkovich as General Thomas Timms dying from cancer and trying to cover his tracks of, you know, uh, atomic or nuclear testing out in the desert. 
And uh, yeah, you just have a lot of great scenes of Nick Nolte just like smashing people in parking lots and like saying crazy shit like uh, this isn't America, this is L.A. And like <laughs> other types of like, you know, hard boiled dialogue mean? 50 years after the fact. And it's a uh, it's a solid movie. It's not great. It's not stunningly directed but it's shot by Haskell Wexler and uh, he uh, he really gave it his all trying to like juice this thing up with that classic sun-soaked neo-noir vibe and uh, yeah ch- check out Mulholland Falls and we're back on extended clip to talk about I'll just say it right now the worst movie we have ever watched for this podcast and probably the worst movie I've watched in quite some time uh music directed by Sia uh came out earlier this year to relatively mixed fanfare I say that because if you're just scrolling the timeline as it were from our points of view this seems like the most detested film of all time this is like something that everyone hates even from the trailer knows it's going to be terrible and uh but the cultural elites still ate it up this was nominated Mm -hmm. not just uh for best actress for Kate Hudson Jesus at the Christ. 2021 Golden Globes. It's absurd. Nominated for Best Picture in the Comedy or Musical category of the Golden Globes in 2021. Now, I know that in 2020, there was not many new releases, and same with early 2021, like we had a really down year for movies, but you gotta dig a little deeper than that, and I think that this movie is proof that the voting body for the Globes, the Hollywood Foreign Press, as they're titled. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a pretty shady group, if you ask me. <laughs> There's a, you know, not to get awards show heavy, but like, isn't there like reports of like people like just like they'll be sent a movie to watch for awards. They'll like turn it off 15 minutes in. They're like, yeah, of I course. think that's, that's happened with music, but they're like, you know what? It's it it was it was good, right? It was about a disabled person. So it's, it's close. A, you just gotta <laughs> cal- so great. You fix it just a little bit, and it's palatable to like liberals. They would love this. Like you got you got Tig Notaro and Ben Schwartz in here. You're just like almost. You're like a quarter of a way to a book smart. You just they like just fucked up one too many things. So, and what do you think? The main fuck up is JT. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think the main fuck up is just like I how transparently like I I feel like there's a complete lack of understanding of like the disability of the main character and treating them like a burden throughout. And just also like the rest of it is just like throwing in like weird representational stuff and just like trauma that like is incredibly unfounded and at times laughable. Like, I mean, not to (laughs) jump the gun, but like there's one scene that like, I feel bad that it made me laugh as hard as it did, but it was the Asian (laughs) domestic abuse that happens (laughs) like out of of nowhere. Yeah. The large Mexican boy who's adopted by a Chinese family and renamed Felix Chang uh, witnesses a domestic quarrel between (laughs) his adopted parents and tries to break it up only to get hit by his dad (laughs) 
And I guess like we're supposed to imply that off screen, he must have bonked his head on like the side of the counter before falling down because then he's just on the ground with a pool of blood around him. And it's like, he, he's dead. It's, it's so weird. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, There's li- no way that little Asian man clobbered the shit out of me that bad that it killed you. Uh, Lindsay, what what was your response to this movie when you watched it? I didn't anticipate them being so heavy-handed with the autism. Mm. I I thought they laid it on super thick, and they came right out the gate with it. Like, it's the very, it's how you're, the the movie draws you in with, uh... (laughs) you know, her retardation. And uh, it's 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 really hard to... Um, it's completely alienating from the jump uh, right away. Uh, Kate Hudson, I think, is generally pretty annoying. Yes. Um, but <laughs> this time was just, I, just out of bounds, irritating. Like, that, like the, her sarcastic thing that she does all the time... She was doing it in in this movie, and it it didn't have any place here. She's just like being herself. Um, I don't think any way that she acted would have made the story good, um, but it didn't. It was impossible to latch on to any anything that was happening, especially because of the frequent musical number intermissions. Yeah. Yeah. So I I was looking into the the production history of this because it's such a weird. Uh, sordid past this film has you know and, and for those who don't know the basic premise of it is that Kate Hudson plays Zoo who ostensibly uh, becomes the lead of this movie after her autistic sister uh, loses her grandmother you, you know the grandmother passes away in the beginning and the grandmother from that opening uh, the opening narrative scene rather than the opening musical scene you see she kind of sets up the whole world around her she has all these people in the neighborhood helping uh, this autistic girl named music uh through her world (laughs) and so then zoo has to come through and take care of music with the help of another neighbor played by leslie adam jr whose name is ebo and uh or ebo rather sorry i should pronounce his name correctly and uh kate hudson of course uh being a recovering addict uh, what any recovering addict would do makes her ends meet by selling drugs. Uh, and she gets her supply from a, a Corn Road Ben Schwartz and also supplies to a, a you know, quote unquote, pop star without borders played by the auteur herself, Sia. Uh, this film... So apparently she wanted to make it just as a straight narrative film with no musical sequences, which is hilarious to me because yeah. like this <laughs> screams like the vanity project of a pop star just latching this supposedly feel good representation story around it. Uh, when of course it's like when I say feel good representation story, that is a, a cynical read on it. But this is the most cynical fucking movie I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Yeah. Like th- this is a movie where. Uh, yeah, it really announces itself up top with its first opening sequence when you see the character, uh, Maddie Ziegler's character, Music. And this girl, Maddie Ziegler, she had acted in a handful of Sia music videos before this. And I don't know, to just get dragged along like and really dragged through the ascension to being like yeah. a pop star after she was found being on a reality show. She was on Dance Moms years before. And I don't... I, I Somehow... 
Sia exploited her more than the producers of Dance Moms. Like this is the <laughs> most exploitative movie. We've talked about some like gnarly exploitation movies on this podcast, yeah. but this is the most exploitative of them all. With like the highest budget exploitation movie because it went from a four million dollar budget to a sixteen million dollar budget when it became That's a musical, crazy. which is very funny to think of. And it's sixteen is actually like kind of low for like a studio movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you watch the movie. <laughs> it's like, oh, they just have this apartment set, the boxing ring set, and like this block of fake street that they can shoot on. And there's really nothing else. Like the entire movie is just like salary, I guess, like the budget for it. But um, the first musical sequence takes place in this weird hallway world of yellow and orange with strobe lights and quick cuts as... Uh, Maddie Ziegler really announces her performance style within this first 30 seconds of the movie you know that she is going to give the most like downright offensive portrayal of autism that I've ever seen it's not even it's not autism it's like clearly like an 80s movie version of like down syndrome but the (laughs) the way that they talk about it in a contemporary context is just like so demonizing and offensive it's it's ridiculous and it's it's also like (laughs) <laughs> this movie is calling her the R word throughout the like that's that's all I can really you know say about like the production itself and the character quote unquote. I mean the dancing style that she has like when we watched Happy New Year. There's a bit where like an epileptic character like starts having a seizure during a dance number, yes. and it's like they carried that bit out into a, <laughs> an entire movie premise. No, I mean it, yeah, I mean like the you know Maddie Ziegler not mentally disabled herself or whatever you know should be noted and it is like the gesticulations and the <laughs> facial movements and uh, all that stuff it's it's yeah it's very offensive it's very unpleasant to watch and it's just like uh, yeah and then it's funny right because uh i don't know as bad as all that stuff is it's like movies can just operate in a way where Everything else is kind of polished enough to where it's like... You can con- transcend poor taste. You could transcend poor taste, or mm. at least, at the very least, be like, all right, it mitigates it at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah. but, but you make a good point as like, there's just so much time spent in like this apartment where just uh, we hear uh, Kate Hudson and just, I, mean, I guess, uh, Ebo just kind of like talk in this apartment comp. And it's just like, it's so like... As as offensive as all the stuff is, you know what I mean. It's like, it's like I I mean it. It's just you know with the music the, you have the conceit where it's like you go into the musical world or whatever, and it, like that's kind of implying that like people with autism have like a different vision of the world. Yeah, or I mean the uh, the lyrics of the first song even kind of say as much. Like the lyrics are about like how you know in this world she can be free, which like kind of implies that she's trapped inside of her body which is like pretty horrific you know um we should also say the uh yeah the the relationship between kate hudson and leslie odom jr's character is so fucking hard to watch you know telegraphed from the first minute no chemistry at all no it's terrible uh and he's the accent that leslie odom jr is employing too is just (laughs) ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) well all right let's like let aside from music and like all that's the character music take take her out of it or whatever yeah which you could you could there's a very there's a version of this movie where she's not even in it which is you know 
crazy to think about but mm-hmm. yeah it's like uh the kind of the character stakes right yeah like kate hudson being a former addict who's like a drug dealer for a, like her plug just i don't get what's even going on there like, yeah because if, her plug also gives her hiv medication i guess that he got on the black yeah. market yeah. and that's how it's revealed that leslie odom jr is suffering from hiv and oh it's just like God. the most insane like i look we give a lot of movies like a lot of room to work with in terms of coincidence and stuff like that but that is just this movie the characters in this movie are the only people in the world of this movie. (laughs) There's no other people. This is the only city where people live. And this is the only, these are the only people that exist, I guess, because everyone comes into, it's like one of those, you know, turn of the 21st century, like everything is connected. Everyone is connected narratives, but it's not even trying to make a point out of that. It's just like the laziness of the script. Well, I guess you know the drug dealer would give her hiv medicine <laughs> to <laughs> give to leslie out of jr's character who you know works at a boxing ring uh training young kids to box in self-defense uh one of the kids of course is felix chang who we mentioned earlier it's so confused like also okay i'm just gonna make this point uh leslie odom jr's character is uh i guess Af- from some african nation and it's definitely racist that he has AIDS. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Incredibly oh, yeah. racist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the way he talks about his, like, upbringing, too, because he relates to music because his younger brother was autistic as well. Oh, yeah. And they said, in Ghana, my younger brother was the same way. He liked to be held to feel safe. So. Where is he now? He is dead now. Oh, I'm That's all right. Special needs are not well understood in my country. In fact, in my village, it was considered a curse. This is like classic, like uh, like nineteen uh, forties, like voodoo style yeah. racism. That like I'm afraid African people know magical tricks. Yeah. <laughs> also, but I guess I didn't quite finish this point. It's like. There's some like devastating things put upon these characters that you just don't feel yes. at yeah. all. Like the fact death that of the grandmother is the, like so hard to watch. Like yeah. in not in the way that painful drama should be. It's like so stupid. Yeah. Or or like the <laughs> fact that like Ebo is like he got cucked by his brother or yeah. whatever, and like kind of the main emotional hurdle he kind of has to go through is that he has to go to his brother's wedding where he's marrying his ex-girlfriend it's like it's it's some some of the strangest stakes like it's like not a problem at all somehow (laughs) well it's not a problem because he can show off his new girlfriend zoo who's (laughs) totally worth showing off at your brother's wedding if like in that scene too like if if ever i were at a wedding where it's like all black people and some and some white girl and her <laughs> sister just turned up and she's wearing a sports bra like they wouldn't just be sitting silently like slicing up their fucking fucking dinner like they would have that's completely not and then to let her sing like to let all of them <laughs> sing like that was not we didn't pay all this money for that shit true and in a way i guess he's kind of getting revenge in the, the most you know i guess in the, kind of the cynical way this movie operates kind of being a good faith you know what i mean yeah. as a front but he's like ruining his uh, brother's wedding with this weird <laughs> musical number by this 
this uh you know this kate hudson shaved head creature (laughs) the musical numbers are just like so garish looking like they definitely have the feeling of let's do production design let's not make something appealing let's do production design you know so you have that red and orange and yellow hallway world you have uh when she's at the live when music is at the library reading about dogs you have her fantasy sequence is just like her turning these giant blank green pages and i don't know what that's supposed to imply about like that being the truth of her reading (laughs) and leslie odom with the like the big ass pants on the treadmill oh my god yeah i don't know what that was (laughs) and then uh felix chang when he dies you get a little musical send-off for him too where the characters are wearing (laughs) outfits that match the wallpaper of the set that they're on and he's like riding this goofy bicycle i guess (laughs) It's just, I I don't even fucking know. But to build out the world a little more, you also have Hector Elizondo as uh, the neighbor, George, who helps out for like the first half of the movie. And Only then, normal guy in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> clearly gets like so upset that he just has to leave. Like, he just, I, I don't remember. Does he have a proper send off in the movie or does he just stop helping them an hour in? I think, I he think might... he, he's a, he's in the tail end for sure. He, but... Okay, yeah, I just it, my yeah, memory after, gets foggy. After Zoo gets like she relapses and gets hammered and her face is all busted up, he like takes care of her, but then I don't think he appears again after that. Oh, speaking of when she relapses, you also meet another character, uh, the neighbor who tries to calm them down and Zoo gets in a fight with, played by none other than Henry Rollins. Uh, Henry Rollins, (laughs) the singer of Black Flag, among other, you know, huge achievements uh, over the last 40 years. I, you know, he's appeared in quite a few films that are like low total low rent projects but i'm going out on a limb here and even if it takes me 30 years to complete his discography and filmography i will say that this is the worst thing henry rollins has ever fucking been involved with <laughs> i mean this this you have to th- feel like this is a career low point for everyone involved yeah. so yeah so many of these people like and, and i'm assuming if you look deeper in the credits i would assume some below the line people too like have been involved in like serious like hollywood art you know like henry rollins is in like lost highway heat bad boys 2 as well as his musical career and like spoken word shit and like hector elizondo that's a respectable character actor that dude's Mm -hmm. been around the fucking block you know leslie odom jr i rising star rising star sure we'll say that (laughs) kate hudson she fucking dominated in the 2000s say what you will about her actual skill as an actor you know uh we have of course her performance in dr t and the women uh predating her almost famous role but almost famous launched her to be like one of the three or four faces of the romantic comedy in the 2000s before she just totally fucking fizzled out uh, as Obama entered office pretty much if you track the timeline and uh, it's it's such a sad state of affair this entire fucking movie and honestly I think everyone except for Henry Rollins deserves like actual punishment. I'm not one of these like cancel culture guys. I don't think <laughs> I don't think they should be any of that. I think like they need to just like pay some sort of fine. Well, I mean, Sia, <laughs> the relationship she has with the young girl. Let's get into it. I think that that might demand some higher level of she, punishment. Yeah, I she, think you could build a case there. She <laughs> has a history of you know kind of. I love making 
movies with kids, and you know what I mean. I don't. I don't, just look <laughs> she into has it. She has two children of her own. Why aren't they in this movie? They're not. They're not gifted enough, apparently. Oh, I Jesus. Um, but uh, uh, the Felix Chang character, I think, is so funny because it's supposed to be like. I don't know what it's supposed to be, like, but he just <laughs> sits on this guy. Just sits on the sidelines the whole movie, and then just dies. <laughs> like uh, this guy doesn't say anything at all. Like he's just watching. Oh no! But he provides he provides her with a a, a, a therapy dog. At, yeah. Uh, after he dies. True, and then he does the flashlight thing for music. But it's like it's all very like he's reduced to a role of service. You know what I mean? Like he's not like he's literally does not like. The only, I guess, emotions you get of his own is that, you know, he's probably pretty down since no one talks to him at all, ever. You know what I mean? But it's... Oh, when he's doing the boxing match and he just hugs the guy? Yeah. What is he, gay? <laughs> is, that, is that the last strand of representation we didn't cover here? Uh, yeah, I, his character reminded me a lot, speaking of his sexuality, reminded me of Andrew Fung as Luigi in Little Italy. Do you guys remember this character who, uh, you know, has something of an identity crisis? He goes by Luigi despite being a gay Chinese man. And uh, yeah, I feel like those two guys would get, those two characters would get along. That's all I'm saying. I, I think they, they deserve deserve their own little spotlights as parts of just god-awful fucking movies uh, that have just little glimmering senses of not even humanity, but just something there where I... Humanity in the actor. Like, I feel bad for these actors a little bit. I don't feel bad for the the leads of the movie. I don't feel bad for the celebrities who make small appearances, like fucking Tig Notaro hosting the children's TV oh, show yeah. that seems like the most demented fucking TV show of all time. <laughs> but you, but you, you know the Felix Chang kid was, like, telling his friends, like, dude, I'm in the Sia movie. Yeah, like, exactly. This is gonna be awesome. But <laughs> the gay guy gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh yeah fucking juliet lewis is in this movie as like her oh, yeah, main yeah. client or whatever and it's yeah i don't know i can't even i can't even go on uh anymore juliet lewis come on she was in husbands and wives <laughs> uh so i I almost don't even want to give this half a bullet. I just want to like, you know, cock the gun and not even fire it. Like this is like, but I, you have to go at least half. It's a one out of 10. It's a half star movie for me. It seriously made me contemplate just like fast forwarding through it or shutting it off because it's the most painful thing ever. Uh, we talked about, you know, super babies, baby geniuses too, that did hold the mantle as the worst movie we'd ever talked about. And mainly because of how fucking boring it was. This movie is just like emotionally cloying and just painful to watch. And uh, yeah, it's a real fucking piece of shit. What about you guys? I mean, I think <laughs> there's nowhere else to go with this. You know, it truly is a half bullet. And like, I think that, like you said, it's not, I feel like when you think of like the worst movies of all time, at least for me, it's like, you know, it's something like super baby geniuses too, where it's just like, it's like super incompetent, you know what I mean? And like just poorly made and it's, but it's, you know what I mean? And it's also boring. It's not entertaining because of that. It's just a boring movie. And I think this one, it's just, it has, it's like, it's not a particularly interesting movie. It's a very upsetting movie and like how it operates. <laughs> like, 
you don't really get anything yeah. <laughs> out of watching like, this movie. working on this movie just like as a PA for the props department or something <laughs> and having to like replace like the weird like the headphones that music wears or something oh. you know just like any you know low on the totem pole position on set of this feels like despite your daily rate of fucking 250 a day on a union production seems like the worst job you could possibly have yeah you got to spend your whole day uh, painting just well I guess if you're a painter it's you know it's easy for those musical sequences like uh all just flat color yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. just I'll, I'll paint this whole room yellow and that's <laughs> it being like a focus pull, <laughs> uh, uh, just like uh, hanging out on a camera rig pulling focus for this movie <laughs> like i would butcher it on purpose I, I, this movie uh, doesn't deserve to be in focus that <laughs> Lindsay, how, any final thoughts in a rating on this one um obviously uh half a half a bullet right that's the, sure. that's the yeah, yeah, yeah. Of those bullets right okay Half of one of those, just, you know, terrible movie. Um, I I feel like I've watched a fair number of really, really bad movies, but there was still something uh, charming, at least about most other terrible movies I've seen because they have some sort of ambition or they're trying to do something that if they had the skill or the money or the whatever uh, to, to do it, they would do it at least moderately well. It would be a decent, a decent movie, but... Sia had everything, uh, everything, all the money that she could have needed. Like she could have had anybody in, uh, pretty much anyone cast in it that she wanted. Um, you know, everything was given to her and she still does not know how to put a fucking story together. Um, and you know, it's narcissistic in all the, the bad ways, all the ways that don't produce good art somehow. Uh, so it's, I'm sure it is the worst movie I will ever see just because there's <laughs> nothing. It just, it just, it comp- there's no life in it at all. Yeah. Um, uh, JT? Yeah, I'm going half bullet as well. I think a while back I said, because there was some claims that I go arm in mode, and yeah. I've been hard and f- played fast and loose with half bullet ratings. <laughs> but uh, this is this is truly it. Um, probably one of the worst pieces of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> um, it, I, I like that we can laugh about it now because... I, I was honestly, laughing while watching I couldn't it. find the humor in it while I was watching. I think I was just like having a bad day already, and just that movie just made it so much fucking worse. Just, but looking back, of course, you could see the humor in it. There's something just so funny about how like that like nefarious hollow liberalism like becomes like something like the type of tone deaf thing that they're like trying to like call out or like tr- yeah. like trying to avoid by producing like some work of representation. It's just weird to me because there's one like not funny joke delivered by like Sia herself where it's like the whole like pop star, whatever the the, pop star without borders. Yeah. That bullshit where she's like, Oh, we're like selling drugs for like, uh, like a crisis or something like that. And that's what the movie is. It's just like a tone deaf, like liberal act to just seem good. And uh, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, when Lindsay, when you said that, you know, they could have cast other people and it, it reminded me of something else I found out about this production that we haven't mentioned. Uh, so the original version, and by the way, this film was in production for a total of like five or six years. Like it took oh her God. like three years to finish casting it. And then like, it's like around Cast the time like perfection. chandelier or whatever, like her, her huge like pop breakthrough happened that she was basically given the King 
keys to the kingdom. And uh, even when she kind of stepped away and was doing more just like songwriting for people, she was like tinkering with the script. And then apparently it took three years to edit this movie where, where they went through multiple editors that uh, apparently oh, couldn't no. see the magic she was trying to create. <laughs> so it was shot like three years ago. Uh, but also initially it was written for the zoo character to be a guy uh the and the first choice was shia labeouf <laughs> which oh, makes all too much sense i don't know yeah. why, i don't know why they didn't go i don't understand why they didn't go with that but the second oh, choice after shia was not into it was jonah hill uh she tried to get oh, jonah God, hill in yes. this thing which is so fucking funny and her decision <laughs> to turn it into a female character star uh played by kate hudson was literally a video she saw of Kate Hudson singing on Instagram. And uh-huh. I think that speaks to the liberal, the li- <laughs> level of like hollowness of celebrity that fuels this movie. Um, and it's just, it's the worst. Put I, down, yeah. put, hey, people out, put down page six, pick up a real book. All right. You know, you <laughs> none, none of this uh, celebrity worship nonsense. Cause we're going to, we're going to get a music too, in some form or another. Oh and, you God. Know I mean? And uh, it's going to be a result of uh, clicking too many articles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's going to do it for this week's extended clip. Nothing in the email uh, inbox. I think people are just letting us be for the final season. <laughs> they, they don't want to bother us anymore. And maybe, maybe, maybe I've been too hard on email writers. I feel uh, like uh, yeah, we've we've dropped scared the, them all off. Eddie. We, we do drop the hammer sometimes on the. Well, it's like if you're going to email a podcast for them to read the email out loud, at least fucking use. Proper syntax and grammar sure. and shit. At least say please. <laughs> At least say please. Or send a manifesto. Or send more money. Uh, so that is going to do it. Lindsay, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, you brought Absolutely. truly the most demented movie we have and ever will ever watched. Uh, and you're welcome. I, I can't believe I just complained about like word choice and grammar and then just said <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm losing it. Uh, but it's fine. That's why we're ending the episode and the podcast. Uh, anything uh, you uh, want to plug, promote, and you want people to listen to your other podcast appearances? <laughs> oh, no, I don't want that. Uh, but I do have a Substack where I post some of my writing. I'm trying to uh, be more faithful and committed to that. It's uh, igoboldly.substack.com. Um, you could find it at my Twitter, which is Orbs of Passion, um, and everything is free right now. So uh, read what you want. I hope you like it. Awesome. The link to that will be in the episode description. Uh, Malcolm, JT, any any signing off words? Malcolm, do you have a double feature for next week planned? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I guess I, that's I, like, I, I, I like how you asked asked me that, knowing that I wouldn't. <laughs> Wait, did I already ask? No, no. I just, I just okay. the eagerness of how you asked. You, yeah, I could, I could tell he you. He just loves putting you in the hot seat. <laughs> no, that's yeah. I love joking around with people, but whenever it jokes towards me, I'm like, why would you do that? To yeah. Me? <laughs> um, but uh, no, no, no thoughts. Just uh, no thoughts. No. Everyone have a have a good week. <laughs> JT, what, you, what about you? Do you have anything you'd like to close out the podcast with? Well, I hope everyone has a good week, too. I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll undercut you and say I hope everyone's week is terrible and uh, they can only survive to look forward to next week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that's a good way to end it. Goodbye. <laughs>